Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What's good, Internet? It is February 12th, 2021, and you are listening to another special episode of Waypoint Radio. As we've talked about before, these Friday episodes for the next couple of weeks are going to include or going to be the uh, full, uh, you know, extended version of the panels that have uh, come at the end of each of the weekly reset episodes. Reset again is the TV show that we consulted on, appeared uh, in, and, and and some other stuff that was kind of spearheaded by our friends over at Vice News. Today we have again two panels that come from the two episodes this week. Um, those episodes, the first one uh, and the second one, both deal with the U.S. military and and its involvement with video games. The first one kind of tracks the history of of games coming out of of the military uh, and then being used uh, both in terms of multiplayer development stuff that comes out of, of military training networks and then also some PTSD research. Uh, but I think the the panel that goes to that one had some really important context and and kind of uh, it's definitely one that I that I would love to have included all of inside of that actual episode uh, that again is Dexter Thomas uh, Matt Galt is on that um, uh, Steve Kernan uh, who is a veteran who has become an anti you know an anti-war activist in the time since and also a short story writer um, uh, who who served in the early 2000s and then I'm on that one too and and I think you know we get into some of the harder questions <laughs> um, more critical you know discussion about the US military about the ways in which games are used to further its 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 goals um you know and, and kind of push back on some of what the military's own representatives say in in interviews in that in that episode or or maybe not their representatives but proxies people who are working on on technologies etc um the second interview is with um again with Dexter and and Matt but also uh, with uh, Ian Boudreau, who, if you don't know, Ian Ian works for PC Games N, um, who uh, where where he covers a bunch of stuff inside of the world of video games. Um, he used to write for he's written for PC Gamer, IGN. He's written for us before. He's also a veteran, but also a veteran who is now in, you know very critical of the U.S. military apparatus. As it turns out, many veterans become after seeing it from the inside in their youth. Um, so, and I've not heard that whole panel as it stands, um, but, but, you know, I'm very interested to, to give that a listen to. I hope you enjoy both of these. We'll be back next week with a couple of more episodes and a couple of more, uh, panels from those episodes. I hope that people, uh, enjoy those also. All right. I'm going to get out of your way. Peace. What's up, y'all? We're back with the Reset Roundtable. We have a lot to get into. So for this time, I've got our Marine Corps veteran, Stephen Kiernan, Motherboard Contributing Editor, Matthew Galt and the host of Waypoint Radio, Austin Walker. Thanks for coming on, y'all. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah, so let's 
let's get into the or let's get into the fun part first, I guess. Um, so I know that the first military style shooter that I really played, I want to say was Counter Strike, but I'm curious, what was it for y'all? Hmm, that's a good question. Austin, like, yeah. it de- it depends on what we mean by military style. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like <laughs> something that is trying to really replicate that sense of military action. I'm probably Counter Strike. I remember there was a there was a, a first person shooter called Delta Force uh, that for PCs mm. that I played a lot of. And the big the big thing with that was it used voxels, which is the same technology in Minecraft. Um, but it wasn't all blocky like that. It, it did have a distinct look, but because it used voxels, it could have these huge battles of like 32 players versus 32 players. And it was very much set in, I don't know if it was a fictional Middle Eastern country, but it was already doing all of those things that we now know and see from Call of Duty, playing on contemporary warfare, you know, different different scale of, of conflict, stuff like that. Um, that was an early one for me to also actually, I think about it, there was a like a sort of a simulator uh, style shooter, uh, I think it was just called SEAL Team 6 uh, that that was explicitly about about the Navy SEALs. Um, and that was like, mm. I remember being a young kid and thinking, now this is, this is serious gaming. This isn't, this isn't <laughs> like, you know, uh, huge explosions and car chases. And like, this is like, this is what real war is like. And so I think, I mean, immediately the way the games industry presents war, it was already something that was happening to me as a young kid, you know? I think for me, it was Rainbow Six. Those first few Rainbow Six games, I think they started mm-hmm. in like 1998 and Counter-Strike is like a year later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember distinctly playing the Rainbow Six games and, and being kind of amazed because they were slower paced. Um, you know, you had to do things like choose which types of ammo you wanted to use and you could feel the effects of that uh, when you were shooting at your opponents. Um, and like the rounds went really fast. There was a lot of stuff that you could see going into Counter-Strike and other military-style shooters later that really, I think, kind of started in Rainbow Six. Rainbow Six is an interesting one, too, because the single player had all that planning, right? There was, mm-hmm. like, the planning phase where you're drawing out maps of characters and saying, okay, this team goes here, that team goes there. And it has, a you know, it's a Tom Clancy game, and so it has that very, like, particular vision of what a, a well-operating military unit looks like. You know, they follow their orders perfectly. You know, no one ever does the wrong thing. You've programmed their orders. You hit play. They do their orders. Um, and yeah. and that, again, contributes to a very Tom Clancy view of what warfare looks like, right? Right. And it's always kind of ripped from the headlines, but not – but like in this weird alternative world where there's very obvious good guys and bad guys, even though it's a Tom Clancy game and things get a little bit muddled – but but even back then we were we were still operating in that binary right and that only kind of gets i think more extreme as the military shooters go on mm-hmm. Steve, what was it for you yeah i think yeah it would have to be ghost recon uh, and it set up the the trend of having like the nondescript kind of russians as the enemy right uh, and right. I, I, <laughs> and we you know we see you know call of duty just keeps riffing on that year after year um, but i rem- i remember I remember specifically watching the the intro to that game with a buddy of mine, and it says, uh, you know, in 2008, this is taking place. And I remember me and my friend were like, oh, trying to calculate out how old we would be in 2008 and how many years in the war we would be in, you know? Um, God. Yes, God, I can't, we must have been 11, 12 years old, you know? So 
<laughs> I mean, it's just kind of funny that we're already calculating, well, how many years would we be in this war right now? Would I be like a veteran or like a new guy? Uh, wow. Yeah. That is wild. Yeah. I'm, I'm also, I'm thinking even before shooters, I'm thinking, man, I, re- I can't remember the game, but I remember this is in the mid nineties, just flipping through a video game magazine and seeing a game. I don't remember what it was called, but I remember the ad really well. It said something like, this game is so realistic, you won't know whether it's a video game or CNN. And just thinking, oh, man, that sounds really dope. And, of course, it was on Super Nintendo. There's no way in hell right. this looked like right. CNN. But, but that, was, that was the ad copy that they used. It was probably Desert Strike, uh, as my that guess. That sounds right, yeah. There was this boom of post-Gulf War games that were so... There was so much excitement in the gaming industry that all of these Cold War era weapons, helicopters, tanks, guns, were seeing action. You know, in in a in a war that that you could really quickly turn around. Uh, you know, good guys, bad guys, and sell that back to kids. You know, I, I think about mm-hmm. an earlier game that I played that was obviously drawing on a war was the NES version of Platoon based on the movie yes. Platoon. And like, it's a, it's a nothing. You know what I mean? It's an action game. You're going left to right. You're going through the jungle. But like, that is a copy of a copy of a war. You know what I mean? Or it's an interpretation yeah. of an interpretation of a war. Um, and, and of course, Platoon the movie is also in conversation with other war movies and all this other stuff. So it's very messy in a way. You know, it's not like very clean. But then, yeah, around the, the you know, early mid-90s, post-Gulf War, you get a lot of these very bombastic you know, military games come up on the SNES and the Genesis. And yeah, that that one is definitely one that I can imagine. The other thing, based on what you just said, is um, that this is also the first war that we see, right? Like a lot of people watched yeah. uh, the Gulf War via CNN. Like that's why that ad copy makes sense because – it was shot. It was like part of the propaganda for the U.S. was to show how overwhelming, you know, the military force was and just kind of like flex power. So to have that then get translated to the Genesis or the SNES feels like in kind in some way, you know? Um, you know, it's also, you know, pushing that myth of the uh, precision strike, right? Um, exactly. Which, you know, the, the idea that there's a clean war and that we can specifically target only the bad guys, you know. Um, and, yeah, how that plays out in, uh, God, I forget the name of the game, but I remember this old school PC game. It was like Apache or something. Um, definitely riffing off that of you flying through the desert, blowing up tanks with like precision missiles and stuff. Um, yeah, well... I, I know. I mean, even even kind of jumping ahead to something else. Um, I mean, when you when you, we start talking precision stuff and the the clean war, right, Matthew? I know you've done a lot of reporting on drones and also on PTSD. Can you tell me about that? Well, the the clean war stuff is really interesting. We're sitting here talking about these games like Apache, like Desert Strike, that were really focused mm-hmm. on this top-down view of conflict. You're you're in a helicopter, right? You're blowing stuff up. You're kind of removed from the visceral uh, death that you're causing. And there's a sense, mm-hmm. um, I think, in the American public that drones are the clean, precision version of that. And we know from Amnesty International reports 
Um, even from some of the Pentagon's own reporting that uh, drones do have casualties. And from a PTSD perspective, like you were saying, um, you know, you would think that when you're operating a drone, you're sitting in a box somewhere far removed from the actual machine, um, kind of severed off from the devastating effects of the conflict from the soldier's perspective. But in actuality, uh, the morale, there's huge morale problems with drone pilots and drone pilots experience PTSD at rates similar to not completely comparable with pilots that are, you know, flying F-16s and F-35s. So, Mm. You aren't, this weird gamification of war that we're experiencing doesn't let people, doesn't let the active duty soldier off the hook uh, for the psychological, uh, for the psychological um, consequences of it, right? And it's interesting to see us replicating and simulating that experience on the home front for fun. Um it's a completely different story when you actually get in that box and you are actually flying above that wedding in Yemen and, you know, you are responsible for pulling the trigger on that. And then you, you get to read about it in your after action report. And then in the news later, it, it, you, you drive home and you get to be with your wife uh, in the Las Vegas desert. It's very, can be very alienating. You know, it's creating a whole different set of problems. I think. Do you think that that's why, Outside of a few examples, like Mole Industria's Unmanned, there aren't many games in which you become a drone pilot. Call of Duty, as far as I know, maybe I've missed this along the way. Maybe there was a, a drone pilot sequence or something mm-hmm. in Modern Warfare. But but I can't think of a, of a big budget Hollywood style, you know, uh, a game uh, that that puts you as a drone pilot as like a major character it's still boots on the ground or you know an ace fighter pilot or something like that you know a little more a little more traditionally prestigious do you think it's because of the reality of that situation or or do you think that it's just not uh, as as uh, exciting for consumers what, why do you think that is no i mean Absolutely. No, I think you've absolutely nailed it because there is a Mm. prestige that goes with being a fighter pilot, right? And that's exciting. We think about, when you think about pilots, you think about Top Gun. That's why there's no great drone, you know, Top Gun style movie. There are movies about drone pilots, but they're always about Mm. how much it sucks to be a drone pilot, how stressful it is and like what the the uh like all the bureaucratic stuff you have to go through to pin to pinpoint who you're going to kill um mm-hmm. and so yeah i think i think that's why it's not it's not interest it's not super interesting to be in a box in the desert behind a joystick mm-hmm. staring through this camera that's half a world away right that's not the fantasy that we're that that video game companies want to sell people mm-hmm. you know well the uh i think the closest we got was i believe it was call of duty 4 where we have that uh that one level where you're the uh, the gunner on a AC-130 gunship, and it's completely done. You're only you're looking, you know, through the uh, television screen, basically looking for targets, uh, and just <laughs> I think you would, like mow through like maybe a hundred people on that level. It's insane, <laughs> um, but it's just just like it's super meta in that moment where it's <laughs> it's like uh, what is it? It's like the real life reflecting art and art reflecting real life, you know, where we got, mm-hmm. you know, you're playing a video game of 
a military role that is very similar to playing a video game where you're operating like joysticks and computer screens to kill people. Um, and at the time, I thought it was amazing. I was like, whoa, I'm totally blown away uh, at how cool it was. Um, but now, years later, uh, especially after the, uh, the incident in Afghanistan where the gunship destroyed the Doctors Without Borders facility and killed uh, dozens of people, uh, it's far more chilling when I go back and replay that. Yeah, that that I think the name of that level was just Death from Above. And I remember at the time yeah. playing that level and being blown away by it because I've read it as a critique of that style of of combat. Um, for people who don't know, it's that kind of like thermal vision, black and white, grayscale monochrome with like bright white thermal individuals yeah. on the ground who you cannot you cannot pull out who they are. You just have to say like, okay, I guess those are the bad guys. And there's VO, there's voiceover from the pilot and the, and the gunner of the AC-130, and they're just ice cold. They're just like, all right, that's another one. Got him. Knocked one out. Uh, we got some more coming up. Can you – yep, you got him. Aced him. And yeah. it's so, so, so chilling, especially in contrast to the rest of that game where, again, it is quote-unquote boots-on-the-ground action. You know, the level right after that is you crawling through the muck trying to get away. And at the yeah. time, I thought, this is a brilliant critique of what modern warfare is. And then, like, one or two games removed from that, that same style of combat, they just dropped it right into the multiplayer where there's no narrative context. There's no creepy mm -hmm. voiceover. It's just, like, a cool thing for the player to do. And that is when I, like started getting a little more skeptical about that series and whether or not it was able to actually wield critique or if it was just trying to like, you know, sell copies to people who thought it was cool when the, when the gunship blew things up. Do you, do you, do you think that you were, do you think that you were reading something into that, that you wanted to exist in that game, that critique? Yes and no. I mean, I'm a little embarrassed by it because I was, I don't remember how old I was. It was, it was, would have been 2007. Uh, so I would have mm. been, you know, whatever, 22 um, and I wrote this long post that I set someone in, in a newspaper in Miami wrote a, a, um, a column about how games like modern warfare were dangerous and his son was playing and he didn't, he didn't like that his son was, was playing these very realistic war games. And I wrote a response mm -hmm. to this guy that he, that he like said, opened his eyes to the idea that games could do more than just you know, be consumer products and toys. <laughs> really, I, yeah. I went hard. This is like young Austin trying to be a game critic for the first time. Um, and and then years later, as that series continued, I was like, ooh, did I put my faith in this thing in a way I shouldn't have? I think it was probably meant to be a sort of rip from the headlines presentation of the reality um, and not necessarily a political statement. But I do think that the way it represented the material reality of war in a way that I had not seen in a video game before, the fact mm. that they left in the cold kind of heartless voiceover of the of the gunner and of the, the operator, um, I think produces a thing worth worth talking about whether or not that was their intention. I'm just I'm, you know, sad but not surprised that the series has turned since then and leaned more and more and more into a sort of more um uh often more quote unquote cinematic uh but but less grounded uh de depiction of war that that can produce those mm -hmm. sorts of readings maybe but i don't know maybe maybe steve or, or matthew has have a different you know uh, uh analysis of, of what call of duty even is at this point 
No, I think you've got, um, I, I think you highlight something really important there, actually. And I want to stress that it's not only just the multiplayer, but a lot of the Call of Duty subsequent to that replicate that exact moment. And it really feels mm. like the people that make Call of Duty said, ah, people really paid attention to that. So now we have to include an AC-130 or drone strike mission as brief as it is in every subsequent entry, including, I will note, the, the most recent one, Black, uh, Black Ops Cold War, has oh. at the end an AC-130 section that looks exactly like that. But you're blowing up Cubans. Um, oh. And I, th I think it's interesting because it highlights how hard it is, I think, to use the images of war um, and these war video games to tell any kind of anti-war message. Right. Um, so we yeah. like Starship Troopers to borrow from another medium is a really great example of uh, something that we think of now as this anti-fascist, anti-war critique of a film. But at the time and even still today, lots of people, you know, love to watch it as a, a, a bug killing movie. And we saw yeah, the Marine yeah. Corps tweet out just yesterday um, a task and purpose story with the headline, um, you know, do you know? Do you want to know more? Which is a line ripped from Starship Troopers, the Marine Corps unironically parodying the parodying the thing that that is parodying them. You know, mm -hmm. it's just very hard to not just get consumed into into that machine, right? I'm not very I'm not very optimistic about uh, the media's ability to effectively uh, create like an anti-war uh, film or video game. Uh, I mean, yeah, just simply like uh, like you, you like you just said to Starship Troopers, which is a clear satire, um, and you going back to you know Full Metal Jacket or Platoon, like those are anti-war movies, but you know, no one ever, you know, no teenager ever views it as an anti-war movie. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just simply putting like combat on screen, uh, no matter how awful and terrible you portray it it's still glorifying it it's still promoting this this fantasy that you try to get to live out vicariously uh through your controller or through a tv screen right um so i think i, I don't even <laughs> i mean there's probably a lot of people that disagree with me on this but i'm not even sure it's like possible to actually you know come up with a a good anti-war you know video game or or film i mean it would have to be the only good example I can think of is this war of mine, where it, you're not a soldier in the war. You're an, you're an innocent civilian caught in the middle uh, trying mm. to survive. Uh, that's probably, you know, the only one that I would list as a, as a solid anti-war video game. Just real quick for people who don't know what that game is. Can you explain a little bit about what this war of mine is for people who haven't played it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a couple of years since I played it, um, but basically you're just... It's kind of like a survival game where you have a couple people, you're in a, a building, there's a little, there's some base building features to it where you can upgrade your kitchen so you can cook food or you upgrade, uh, you know, the plumbing so you actually can use uh, the toilet or whatever. Uh, and you have to make decisions on whether you go outside and risk being killed to search for more food or if you stay indoors and try to survive on what you have, you know, uh, and every kind of interaction, there's interactions with uh, people will show up to your building uh, asking to come in or asking for food. And it's always extremely tense because you don't know whether these people are going to try and rob you or whether, you know, there's soldiers coming to, you know, kill you or capture you. Um, so you're just constantly living in fear, constant, or 
constantly trying to survive. Um, and that and there's no, if I can't, I can't remember, there's, there's no real combat in it. You're not, you don't fight people. I just wanted to make sure people knew about it because I think games yeah. like that slip through the cracks sometimes. And, you know, you see the big budget commercials for Call of Duty, you see the big budget commercials for Halo or whatever, but a smaller games that try to treat this stuff differently sometimes don't get audience share, you know? Uh, that, you know, I believe that game is, uh, I don't remember if it specifically says uh, it's the Bosnian War in Sarajevo, but it's heavily implied at, at the very least. Um, mm -hmm. I would love to see a similar game like that set in like Baghdad or Fallujah, where you have to interact with, you know, American troops, right? Um, right. And all that, you know, that would be a good anti-war film that, or not film, <laughs> it'd be a good anti-war game that, uh, you know, puts much more context into, you know, the type of, you know, modern warfare where you're flying in a helicopter to come bust up some random Middle Eastern country, right? You get to see the effects mm -hmm. on the people who live there have to survive through that. Um, but, you know, that's yeah. just like a wish list that I don't think is ever going to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's precisely like what you were talking about, Steve. And I think that for the most part, especially first-person shooter games, right, It's it really is all about the combat and all the politics, all the context is really just stripped out so that you can get to getting in some headshots and having fun. I mean, are, are there any games that you can think of that actually get that historical context or that current context right or the politics right? Because there's, there's no shooters that I can think of offhand that really, really nail it. But I'm curious about what you think. I mean, I think uh, Spec Ops The Line tried, not like, in a, not historically speaking, but like politically, they tried mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, show you know, the horror behind war and how it affects your humanity uh, and your psyche. Uh, but whether or not that was actually successful is, I don't know, I think it's kind of debatable, uh, even though I love that game. Um, but that would probably be the closest one in my mind. Because at the end of the day, you're still, well, I think Spec Ops The Line is a really good example because it is this game that's like parroting um, Heart of Darkness, right? And set in Dubai and like you're a soldier kind of sent to extract a commander that is uh, gone full Colonel Kurtz, we'll say. Um, and the game is constantly critiquing the, the United States military and the idea of these military power fantasies. But at the end of the day, the main way that you're still engaging with the game is it's still a, thir a third person cover based shooter. You're still shooting bad guys. You're still doing all the things that you would normally do in a game. That's still the primary interaction that you have with the world. And I like, I like spec ops the line. I think it's trying, it's taken some big swings. It's trying some interesting things, especially from a series that has never done anything like that. But some of those critiques fall flat because you're still a person with a gun in their hand shooting people. Right. Mm hmm. And I think that's the primary problem with a lot of any kind of anti-war video game that is based around the idea of you being in first or third person and shooting. That's If that's the way that you interact with the world, those are, you're limited in the kinds of stories that you can tell, which is why this war of mine is good because it's a switch of perspective and you're feeling the effects of what war is like from a side of the story that you don't normally hear. Mm -hmm. Totally. I think a thing that you highlight there, and that's sometimes hard to think about with video games, is that developers have to invest in making parts of the game enjoyable. And with shooters, first or third person, it's the shooting that has to feel enjoyable. 
Yes, there can be a story. Mm -hmm. Yes, there can be, you know, really interesting aesthetics. But fundamentally, what they're trying to produce is a game in which when you pull the trigger, it feels good. Um, there are, of course, always exceptions to this. But when we're talking about, again, big budget games that are looking to have audiences of millions and millions of people, that core action, we sometimes talk about those as verbs. That verb has to feel good, and it has to feel good hundreds, thousands of times because games are long. Yeah. You pull the trigger a bunch of times. And so at the end of the day, even if there is a wrapper around the story that says, hey, you know, war is bad, the American, you know, military industrial complex is corrupt, blah, 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 you know, left trigger, right trigger still feels good. And that means that there's a limit to what you can do in that format, I think. Mm -hmm. So in in this episode, we're talking a lot about um, you know how how video games are both preparing people to go to war, and then also potentially how it may be benefiting people who are coming back. And I mean, Stephen, you've got a perspective on this that none of us have, in that you were in the Marine Corps. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Um, in regards of like using esports to recruit kids. I mean, in, in any, I mean, I've, I've read how you've, you've written about how you have conversations with people about this when people come up and start asking you, hey, you know, some of your blogs you've written, right? Um, when, when you talk about your time in the Marines, what do you talk about? Um, I don't know. I guess when I first got back, I probably, I don't, I don't remember talking about it a whole lot. Um, mm. other than people would just come up and say, Oh, thank you for doing what you do. Uh, and I would just kind of go, Oh, thanks. Thanks. And just nod along. Um, mm -hmm. people would always want to ask me like what I thought about the war, you know, well, what do you, what do you think about what's going on over there? You know, um, people are trying to look for the, uh, uh, not the expert view, but the, uh, you know, the one who's been on the ground. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and in the early on, when I first got back, you know, it was more of, I would just answer, uh, oh, well, we're, you know, we're doing our best, you know, to try to, you know, make a good country over there for, you know, the Iraqi people. Right. Um, now when people ask me that question, um, I think it was, <laughs> I'm a lot more blunt with how I respond, you know, it's more of, well, I think it was a huge waste of, you know, waste of time, waste of lives. Um, we went in and you know, killed lots and lots of people and destroyed this country, uh, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria. Um, and we didn't, we, we didn't really help a lot of people. Uh, we say we did, you know, and maybe in small ways, you know, we opened up a school here, we rebuilt a bridge over here. Uh, but that's like <laughs> small potatoes, you know, it doesn't make up for the, uh, you know, the hundreds of houses, you know, thousands of houses probably in Fallujah that we destroyed um, mm -hmm. doesn't make up for all the civilians caught in the crossfire and disrupting their lives. Um, I mean, that's kind of how I answer it now. Uh, some people, yeah. I think more and more people are kind of agreeing with that. But, you know, back in, you know, when I got back in 2008, if I had said that, people would have thought I was like crazy or something. Um, but now that it's been going on so long, um, I think people are much more... I guess they're much more open to the idea that it was, you know, we don't always wage war for, you know, good reasons and we're not always successful. Uh, so if we can introduce you, cause I think some of us, you know, we've got the, we've got the lower thirds. Oh, this person's at the, at motherboard. This person's at, 
advice or whatever. Um, don't know a whole lot about you. So if you could even just sort of introduce yourself in terms of when you served, where you were, what years, what your experience was. So, yeah, I mean, if you could tell me about what was your time like in Marines? Yeah, so I I joined up when I was 17. Uh, I was super moto to join. Uh, got my parents to, to sign that waiver so I could do it. Uh, I even graduated high school early so I could go to boot camp as early as possible. Um, oh. When I was, uh, I was buying what they were selling, you know what I mean? Uh, and that was, so I joined up in 2005, uh, deployed to Iraq, uh, ended up being getting blown up in an IED in 2008 uh, in Fallujah, and then spent two years at Walter Reed going through physical therapy, uh, learning how to walk again and use prosthetics and stuff. Um, so that's kind of my my military experience there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know what else. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no, and I'd I'd love to hear more about. So, what was your time like at Walter Reed? Um, I mean, it was quite a. I mean, it's it's, it's a huge shock because mostly, you know, you get you, you know, anyone who's been through a big traumatic event, uh, especially one where you suffered, you know, pretty serious injuries like myself, having both my legs amputated. Um, you know, it's a huge, huge shock and adjustment to try to, to cope with that, come to terms with that. Um, it took me a long time to come to terms with that, to the, the seriousness of my injury. You know, it sound, sounds weird to say like, you know, hey, got your legs blown off. How is that not, how do you not take that seriously? Uh, mm-hmm. But I was, I, was, I, was in the, I was in denial for a long time. I remember thinking like, oh, well, this isn't, I can come back from this. I can, uh, you know, I kind of wanted to, to re-enlist to be like a helicopter pilot. And I was like, oh, I could do that, you know, with no legs. <laughs> uh, and then it wasn't until maybe a couple months after my injury where I remember a staff sergeant who was in charge of us came in and he's like, oh, hey, you got to fill out this VA paperwork so you can get hand controls in your car. And I was like, hand controls? What the hell do I need that for? And then, then it really hit me, like the seriousness uh, of my situation, uh, you know, how, how much my life had changed and was going to change. Um, and I remember just being like dumbfounded by that. Um, I think I probably broke down a little bit <laughs> and uh, cried in the hospital bed. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it, it's really weird to like experience that and go through that. Um, and then being at the hospital, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole other thing, right? I got to Walter Reed right after they had the huge scandal where there was like mold and like rats and stuff in the Whoa. bedrooms. Um, right. So they were in like big PR mode, like, oh, we gotta, we gotta make sure people know that we're taking care of these vets, right? Um, mm-hmm. So they built a whole new uh, physical therapy center that had, you know, a huge track it would, that you would walk around it. It was like multiple levels. Um, top of the line equipment. They even had a damn like rock wall where you could climb up the rock wall with your prosthetics and practice that. Um, and then the people they would bring in, it was insane. Um, I, I've written about this a little bit in some of my stories. Um, but the room itself, it's like a big glass container, basically. All the walls are glass, you know, which is nice because it lets a lot of light in from, you know, mm-hmm. outside. But on the opposite side of the room, it's you feel like you're in a zoo, you know. 
where you, they would oh, bring man. in all these, they would bring in all these VIPs uh, like uh, congressmen, senators, or Britney Spears, or like Metallica, like all these like random <laughs> celebrities. Um, and they would buy. You'd see them getting the tour, and they're like walking along the glass, and they're, they're like pointing, like oh, they're like pointing out different pieces of equipment while you're in there trying to work out, right? So it's like you feel like you're on display, um, and then they come in and kind of like, I mean, they, they they mean well, you know, they're there to, you know, celebrities in a way they mean well that they're there to like mm-hmm. show their support and etc. But they they really are kind of like interrupting your physical therapy session, right? Um, so it gets to the point where, you know, celebrities, all these celebrities be coming in. They're like, oh, hey, you want a picture with me? And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm going uh, to work out and, you know. Jeez, yeah. man. Um, and you're, when you're in that for so long, like a lot of guys are there for like a year or two years. I've known people that were there for like five years um, just because they keep having setbacks and have to get new surgeries. Um, when you're in you know, a situation like that where you're being treated like you're royalty, right? Um, a lot of people kind of internalize that and it, uh, it changes them, not, not in good ways, you know? Um, mm. So then when they, you know, when they eventually on, uh, to form their, to start their own lives again, uh, they kind of have uh, the, this attitude that uh, you owe me something, you know what I mean? Um mm. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I could talk about that all day, but <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's that's that 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 is wild, especially the and I'm I'm feeling because I, I read the I read the bit in All Your Base Belong to Us about in in the story that you wrote called All Your Base Belong to Us about you know B list celebrities coming in wanting to take photos and stuff like that. So that that part felt okay. This feels this feels like this actually happened a few times. Yeah, <laughs> like every day. <laughs> <laughs> but but also speaking of which, um, there was a lot in there about video games. So I understand you were playing some video games. Also, um, can you tell me a little bit about that? When you were when you were recovering, what were you doing? Uh, yeah, video games were really important to pretty much everyone there going through therapy, right? Because mm-hmm. you know we we're all like uh, I don't want to use the term gamers just because there's a lot of uh, you know negative context around that, <laughs> um, but. <laughs> you know, one of the things being in the military, especially in the infantry, like when you're not out in the field training, you're in your, you're in your barracks room, like playing video games with your buddies. Um, mm-hmm. So it's already in, it's already built into our culture. Um, and so, you know, afterwards, obviously, um, we still want to go play our video games. Uh, and they're really, they became really important because, you know, you go through physical therapy for a few hours every day uh, and you're worn out and tired. So you get back to your room, you just need to relax and, uh, you know, how, you know, we relaxed by, you know, getting online, playing some Halo 3 or uh, Call of Duty, right? Um, and it's, I mean, it was, it's also a, a way we stayed in touch with all our buddies who uh, were still in our old units, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, you get, you get wounded, uh, you get evac'd out immediately, you get shipped back to the United States, you know, there's no time to, like, say goodbye or to, you know... Uh, have that kind of closure with your buddies. Um, so if you can get online and like play video games with them, uh, you know, it almost feels like you're back in the barracks with them uh, doing one on one on ones on rust or something. Uh, <laughs> and that, you know, psychologically that's, that, you know, that's, 
that helps a lot of guys out and it helped me out when I was going through it. Um, and then there's also, you know, you know, you know, me, you know, having not lost my legs, uh, you know, a lot of the guys there, you know, had lost limbs, um, you know, whether it be legs or arms. Um, but I remember, you know, like myself, like they had had all these kind of adaptive sports you could do like, Oh, you could play wheelchair basketball. You could do sit down volleyball. Uh, you could go golfing with a special golf cart that like straps you in and like lifts you up. So it could like simulates you standing to hit the thing. Um, and all of that was great, but you know, it just, for me personally, it just served me as a reminder of like how much my life had, you know, changed, mm. you know, and at the time how much my life had changed for the worse. Uh, I mean, I don't view it that, that way now, but definitely in the first couple of years, um, you know, that that's how I saw it. So video games were like the one thing where I didn't need a handicap to play. Right. I didn't need special equipment. Um, I could still be just as good, you know, as I was, uh, getting headshots on, uh, in Halo three as I was before, you know? So that was a big morale booster for, uh, for me. And I know for a lot of guys, uh, as well. Mm. Mm. It's in that story that Dexter mentioned, there was a there's a character mm. who shows up who does not enjoy the fact that so many people at Walter Reed are playing video games. I'm curious if that right. drew on a real experience. Was the fact that y'all wanted to play games and connect to people and, and all that was that looked down on by higher ups or or or, or what? Oh, it was definitely definitely looked down upon, um, really? especially with like older older officers, like you know majors and colonels and generals right uh you know they're all like boomers uh where they were just you know time you know you should be you know you should be doing your physical therapy and if you're not doing your physical therapy then you should be like training you should be doing uh it's called pme which is like primary military education it's basically these 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 really dumb like classes where they send you these notebooks and you got to read through the notebook on like land navigation or something. And then you take a test and then you send it in and you get scores and it helps like with your promotions and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But they said, you should be doing that if you're not uh, doing physical therapy or you should be doing online college classes. Uh, you know, and to, to an extent, yeah, they're probably right. But, you know, they, they thought like, that's, that's all you should be doing. You know, they're, they're treating us like right. we were still, um, you know, junior enlisted in a regular infantry unit where, you know, you're on the government's dime. So you should be doing everything you can to be the best Marine or best soldier as, as you can. Um, they hadn't adjusted to the fact that they're dealing with, you know, people that have, you know, I mean, a lot of us, we basically have like checked out of the military. Like we were still in, mm-hmm. but like mindset wise, we were like civilian mode, you know, we're calling each other by our first names uh, we abandoned using military time, you know, um, people are trying to sneak in like beards and like push in how long they could go without getting a haircut, you know, um, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that's where we were at. Um, mm. and they hadn't realized that, um, and specifically for that story for, uh, all your base, uh, or belong to us, uh, was inspired by an, an event like that, um, where a new Colonel came in and he had, he had gone around you know, done his inspections and, you know, noticed a lot of guys are playing video games and based on like comments on it, like, Oh, you're kind of like, you know, they're wasting their time on these Nintendos. <laughs> it's like, you know, this, this is a nice Xbox 360, sir. Okay. Um, but, and then, yeah, then there, there was this incident um, where I, I think it was a, a soldier. He had 
locked himself in his room for probably like three or four weeks and never left. He would order food to come in there. He stopped calling his, you know, parents and friends. Um, and he just stayed in his room uh, playing video games for like nonstop. Um, and that was, you know, he was clearly going through like depression and PTSD and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But uh, instead of <laughs> recognizing that, like, oh, hey, this guy needs some, uh, you know, he needs some therapy. Um, he's going through some troubles here. Instead, they decided, oh, actually, uh, this is a problem of video games. That's what caused this. So we're just going to shut down video games for everybody. Um, wow. And they actually did go to their, the, the, go to the IT. And I'm, I'm not an IT person, so I don't know, like, all the techni- technical stuff. But th- they basically shut down all, if you tried to log on to the internet through, like, Xbox Live or PlayStation Network, it would block Really? You. Wow. Yeah. Um, Wild. I mean, cutting I, off another method of human connection. Right. Yeah, it did not go over well. It uh, the story I wrote, you know, obviously it's a satire. It's kind of, you know, it's the ex- it's uh, just started as like a thought experiment of, uh, you know, what is the extreme? What is taking that to the extreme? Uh, how would that play out? Um, and so in the story, they you know they they mutiny and take over. Um, yeah. We didn't quite do that in real life, but I would say it, it got it got a little close. Um, we kind of, uh, yeah. What'd y'all do? Well, we, we raised hell. That's for sure. (laughs) We complained. Uh, and then we all kind of stopped going to our appointments. None of us outright said like, we're going on a strike, but, um, that's kind of, kind of what we did. Um, and eventually, uh, someone was able to like talk the Colonel down and like maybe a week later he, uh, turned the access back on. It's interesting that you've identified this way in which video games were therapeutic for you in this unofficial Mm. capacity where you're able to connect to other people, talk to your old squad mates, you know, be, you know, uh, connect to people uh, and, and also just blow off steam and how important that was. And that had, that was kind of looked down on, but on the other hand, and now in 2020, you know, in the reporting Dexter did for this episode, I know, you know, uh, uh, he looked at uh, ways in which the military are using things like video games directly as a therapeutic uh, a solution yeah. for some for some returning, uh, you know, service members. And, and I'm curious how you feel about that aspect of like modern, you know, I think in this case it was exposure therapy basically via VR. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how you feel about that stuff, Stephen. I mean, I think it's great. Like if it, uh, you know, if it's actually helping people um, with their trauma, then, you know, I think they should, I think it's great. I think they should definitely do it. Um, I'm glad they've, they, I guess, uh, you know, the, they as in the military as a whole, um, you know, I'm glad to see they, they're starting to, to come around on that and think, uh, oh, hey, maybe these, you know, these video games, you know, they can act, you know, they actually are good and helpful, you know, for, you know, mental health, uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, physical therapy, um, whatever it is. Um, so it's, it's good. It's exciting. Um, I'm not sure I would, I would do it myself. Uh, one reason because, you know, VR, I'm, I never really got into VR, mostly, mostly because, uh, being a wheelchair user, um, a lot of the VR, they want you to like stand up and like move around the room. And I just can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, yeah, talking about exposure therapy, I'm, I'm not sure I would want to 
<laughs> you know, go through that again, even in like a controlled, safe environment. Um, I recognize that how helpful it could be. Um, you know, maybe in the future, I'd, I'd, yeah, I, would, I would try it out. I mean, I'd, I'd be open to it, but yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I I did the VR treatment right, and obviously, I've never experienced anything like that. But even just being there in that VR helmet, that was really intense. There's no no question about it. And I, I'm curious. I mean, as opposed for for that, as opposed to say traditional talk therapy, do y'all think that's something that you would rather do, even outside military context? Say, yeah, I can see how uh, people, um, a lot of post 9/11 veterans, would be more open to that. Um, mm. Just because you know we're used to playing video games, we grew up playing video games, so we're very comfortable and familiar in that environment. Um, yeah. And I, I, I went to therapy a couple times uh, when I was at Walter Reed, and I was always kind of turned off by it, um, mm. mostly because you know you're, you're supposed to like sit there and you know talk about all these like combat experiences uh, and trauma experiences with someone who had, doesn't have that shared experience with you, you know. So it was very, uh, I was very hesitant to to open up and talk about it. Um, especially being so, so recent afterwards. Um, nowadays I have, I don't really have a problem with it. Like I understand, like <laughs> you can still have these conversations with people, even if they, you know, haven't had the same experience as you can, but yeah, I think just like the, the familiarity and comfort of, you know, video games, uh, for my generation of veterans, uh, I can definitely see how that, uh, they'd be more willing to try something like that than the traditional sit down in a closed box room with one other person trying to mm-hmm. talk about your feelings, you know? I mean, I'm even thinking maybe this is sort of an, an elementary question, but as you're talking about, yeah, after I got back, I'm in Walter Reed, I'm recovering and playing the same military themed games that you were playing before. I can imagine somebody saying, yo, I don't want to look at another gun. I don't want to look at another bomb blowing up on a screen, but you went right back to that. Was that not traumatizing for you? Um, I don't know. I think at the time, like, I, it didn't bother me at all. Um, like, I didn't even think to, to connect those two things, you know. Um, now, like, 12 years later, I, I think back, and you know, I'm like, wow, there's a lot to, like, unpack there with that. Um, but I don't know. Like, I think it was just because, like, it's weird. Like, with video games, I'm able to separate it. And I realize, okay, this is a video game. It's... It's meant to be uh, kind of taken to the extreme, you know. Uh, it's meant to be bombastic, and um, I'm able to separate the fantasy there. But with like movies, I can't do it. Um, if I watch war movies, it's like a World War II film or maybe Vietnam. But I don't, I, w- I don't watch anything about Iraq or Afghanistan. I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know why I did. Um, why that is different compared to playing, you know, Call of Duty, you know, Modern Warfare. Uh, when a video game, you have direct control over the action to a certain extent, right? And in a movie, you're along for the ride. Yeah. Yeah, that could be. It could be a control issue. Um, I also, I kind of stopped playing the shooter single player campaigns because they were just, they got, I think the last one I played was Advanced Warfare, whatever the one with Kevin Spacey was. Yeah. And it just got like so it just got so outlandish. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to do the multiplayer. Um, so I kind of separate myself from, uh, you know, having to 
you know, the, I think in, in the new Call of Duty, I haven't played it yet, um, but there's the the scene where they got the Highway of Death, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, even that Call of Duty 4, going back to that, where you're in the gunship shooting people through the, you know, the black and white television screen. Um, I pretty much just avoid all that and just go straight into the multiplayer. Mostly, I, I kind of just, like, turn my brain off, really. Like, I just sit there, get in the mode, and just start playing, probably listen to a podcast while I do it. Um, yeah, I find that, I find that to be relaxing. I don't know. The, I'm thinking about the earlier part of our conversation where you said that, um, when you were 11 or 12, you were playing Ghost Recon and you were kind of having these moments where you were imagining yourself in the conflict that they were talking about. What do you think about that when you like, you reflect on that now? Um, and what do you think it's like? I'm trying to think of even what kind of question I'm I'm trying to ask, but uh, what do you make of kids as young as 12 playing these video games and kind of getting geared up in a way for conflict? Do you think that the video games came first or that your interest in conflict came first? Do you think that like the video games at all spurred you to be interested in joining the military? I mean, I think they definitely had a part to play um, along with like, you know, war movies, right? Because um, I was, I, I was like fully like you know it's, it's you're it's supposed to be a fantasy right like you're the ghost recon soldier there out you know hunting down Russians or whatever um, and me as like a young kid I was definitely like projecting myself into that into that role like imagining myself like man that would be so cool if I could go do that you know that'd be badass um, and then I mean I don't even think like later on like when I was in the Marines. To an extent, we were, you know, we, uh, all my, you know, my fellow Marines, maybe subconsciously, we're doing the same thing, um, you know, because we go, when you go to, you know, war in real life, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan, there's nothing, nothing like you saw in old war movies where you've got big tank columns going up against big tank columns. Uh, you know, it's rare to actually see the enemy that's fighting you. I mean, even in a firefight, like you rarely see that you would maybe if you're lucky you'll get like uh you'll see the gun barrel flash or you'll see some smoke coming up being kicked up from their machine gun but other than that it's it's you you're going out on patrols you get blown up you take casualties there's no one to shoot back at you know or you're a sniper gets one of your guys uh, you, and you can't shoot back and it's very 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 frustrating um so video games in that sense kind of help provide a fantasy to, you know, active duty troops where it's very clear, like, Hey, we got, you see the enemy, you shoot them, you see their head explode, you see their body drop. Uh, if right. you know, you feel like you're, that's the experience, the war experience you wanted. <laughs> it's not the one you get. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's probably why I know a lot of, uh, you know, war games are so popular among the military. Um, totally. It's, it's interesting it's just, because I don't think any of us would mm-hmm. say games cause you to do violence. Like we're so far past that, you know, discourse. That, yeah. That yeah. Kind of we got, we got past nonsense. that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I do think it's fair to say based on what you just said and, and based on what I think a lot of us have read and, and talked about in the past, that they're part of, especially military games, war games like Call of Duty are part of a network of 
things that help propagandize what war the, the war fantasy, especially the American war mm-hmm. fantasy of these heroic soldiers going into combat to save the day, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing that we see sometimes that's that is especially interesting, you know, you brought up Call of Duty Modern Warfare, the the most recent one that just called Modern Warfare, kind of rebooted the franchise, and how it how it used the highway of death. Um, but it decontextualized it, right? The real highway of death was something that came out of the first Gulf War in which, uh, you know, you know, I think the estimate is something like 10,000 uh, retreating Iraqi uh, soldiers were attacked and bombed by American forces. But in the game, the same description, the same visuals are used and it's attributed to a, uh, a Russian operation in a, in a fictional Middle Eastern country. And when you're not even engaging, not only is the type of combat fictionalized, but when you're taking real historical tragedies or, or you know, I don't know that, that that counts as a war crime, but I think it's fair to say that shooting at retreating soldiers is, is not necessarily a just thing to do in, in most cases. Um, uh, and then, and then saying that that happened, but that, that wasn't blood on America's hand. That was blood on our, you know, perennial, uh, adversary Russia's hand really helps contribute to that propaganda that, that tries to sell America as the world sheriff, the, the, the do-gooders, even if that game also complicates things mm-hmm. in some ways. When you do something like that, I think it's hard to deny that there is a relationship between military themed games and the way that America and young Americans especially perceive our military operations, you know, internationally. Yeah. Especially, I mean, also thinking, you know, kind of, you know, whitewashing the history there and absolving the U S of, you know, totally. uh, of, uh, do of any wrongdoing, you know, I think it was with modern warfare too. You have that scene where you, you actually like torture somebody. And this is, I think, when did that game come out? Like 2009 or 2010, you know, just a few years after the whole Abu Ghraib thing, when, you know, torture and enhanced interrogation uh, were, were in the conversation, like politically, like it was a fairly common thing. I mean, it was almost, I mean, Abu Ghraib was almost a household name. Everyone knew what that was. And, to, yeah. you know, and then to come out with this game so soon afterwards where you're like torturing people and, to do so in a way that like justifies the torture, right? Well, it, it wraps around to me to something else that Dexter, you learned about in the episode where you were talking to the doctor who runs the VR clinic uh, and, and develops mm-hmm. some of those technologies. And one of the things that he said that kind of like struck me and froze me in place was that he was helping to develop technologies that would not only treat PTSD – but would attempt right. to prevent it from developing in the first place to prepare uh, combatants for the situations so that it's not traumatic for them when it happens. And I like that really, because like in my mind, you know, for me, I'm like, oh, that's, I kind of, and you kind of say this, I, I think some of those experiences should be heavy. Like they should be, there should be a psychic cost to invading a place and and being being killed and killing people. Or maybe the thing that I thought more of was like, listen, man, no one is making VR treatments for the people in Fallujah, for the civilians who suffered through an invasion. Mm-hmm. They don't get that treatment. And so to jump from we should treat our soldiers with PTSD, which I get, to we should prepare mm-hmm. them so they don't suffer uh, psychological trauma at all 
feels somehow one-sided in a way that set me at real unease. Um, and, and that's another, and that, that to me is, is caught up in all that same stuff we were just talking about. I mean, I, I think, I think that's, th- th- there's a strange line there, right? Because, and I, I think you're hitting on something here, Austin, is, is one cannot say, I want somebody to feel bad when they have done, when they have done something, right? You, you can't say that, right? That fe- there's something that I think just at a gut level that, hey, if you go to war, I want you to feel bad about that. There's just something that feels wrong, I feel. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that whatever altruistic motives that, for for example, in this situation, the army specifically may have, right? Of course, they want to take care of people. But there there is a bottom line here, right? Because we have to keep in mind that they they have numbers on this. It costs $15,000 on average to recruit a new person to enlist into the army, right? And so if you can have people well enough to go back, to redeploy, yep. right, to re-enlist, and where they're not in a situation where they're they're not mentally, emotionally able to go back out there, you've just saved yourself a boatload of money. And so if you can build a little video game that makes them feel not only okay before they go out and then feel okay after they come back, for your bottom line, that's an excellent financial decision. I think we have to keep totally. in mind here that this is not just this is not just about our feelings and talking through our feelings and all that. This does have a lot to do with, okay, financially, what is a good decision? Well, and I think you see a lot of returning troops who have gone through the sorts of experiences that Stephen has. And maybe maybe I'm talking you know, out of my neck here and Stephen, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of what happens is the experiences that they have, the conversations that they have after returning – the working through their experiences often make them think about war differently and they become, you know, activists, they become writers, they, they speak to what their experiences are in this way that is closely knit to their, their traumatic experiences. And I'm not saying that like mm-hmm. you need trauma to become a good activist or anything like that, but I do wonder to what degree trying to erase that or prevent that style of uh, experience or, or or whatever from happening would also lead to less outspoken service members who come back and end up actually opposing American war or talking about the ways in which soldiers and civilians are put in harm's way. I don't know. Again, Stephen, you could tell me I'm completely off base here because I don't have this experience, but I'm I'm curious. No, no, I get it. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, do you want future catch 22s and slaughterhouse five or <laughs> do you want american sniper every single month like a new one all the time <laughs> that's exactly uh, you know we yeah, want yeah, yeah. yeah yeah i mean it, it, it's it's tough because i mean like you said like yeah we don't want obviously we want to help people get through their their trauma and uh you know to overcome it right um but at the same time, we don't want to be, I think Dexter, you mentioned this in the video is you don't want to create people who are just like emotionless uh, machines, essentially willing, you know, with no moral compass uh, mm. who are capable of, you know, doing whatever you tell them. Right. Um, there's a danger there. Um, and yeah, I don't know how to, it's, it's, it's just like such a, 
Yeah, it's such a like crazy new concept, or not, maybe not even a new concept, but it's a new reality um, that it, it's hard to even like think about, like what you know what could happen going down the going down the line, you know, 10, 20 years from now. And it's part of this continuity in this country. Like America has gotten really good at divorcing its civilian population from the costs of war. Right. I think that's a big part of why we have so much of it and we're deployed so many places is that the civilian population does not feel it in any way. And when we talk about like priming soldiers to be emotionless, it feels like that's another step in that direction for me. And like, I, I get what you're saying, Dexter, that you don't want people to feel bad, but like the, there's a, there's a psychic and emotional toll to war and conflict that most of us here in the States are completely separated from. And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm thinking too big here, taking too big a swing, but I think like games like Call of Duty help us uh, process those conflicts and take the images out of context and remythologize America's wars and put in like retell those stories in a way that make us more comfortable and put right. us at the center and make us heroes. Right. And so I just, when we start talking about using VR to like prime people up, I get real uncomfortable real fast. I'm curious, Stephen, if you had the opportunity before you ever went out to receive some VR training saying, look, here's what you're going to see out there. You might have to do some things that you would never want to do, but here we're going to prepare you for it. So that if the, if the unthinkable does happen, if you have to commit the unthinkable, or something happens to you, here's how you can process it. Would you have wanted that? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, being in the Marine Corps, I probably wouldn't have got a choice. They'd have been like, hey, you're going to go do this. Um, <laughs> you're going to go through this VR training, you know, whether you like it or not. Um, yeah. But yeah, just thinking like as a, as a Marine, getting ready to go, maybe on like a first combat deployment when you're, mm -hmm. you're anxious, uh, you don't know what to expect. I mean, you've probably seen a lot of movies and read a lot of books about all the, you know, struggles people have when they come back from war. And you're kind of like, oh, man, I hope that I hope that doesn't happen to me, you know. So if there was an option like, hey, we can help prevent that, um, I think I, I, I would want to do that. Mm -hmm. The thing that I the thing that I think is worth saying here is that if such a if such a priming, you know, system uh, was perfected, even then. There is just no such thing as a war without cost. The question is, where is that cost applied? Um, if mm -hmm. we had a fighting force that did not, uh, that, that could be redeployed indefinitely because there was no trauma involved in performing the actions or seeing the things that they did, all that does is slide that cost further onto the people uh, and the people around the people who were invading. Um, there, there isn't a world in which there is a bloodless war. There's only a world in which that blood is out of sight for the American populace. Um, and I know that that does sound like me saying, and that means I want American you know, soldiers to, to come back with PTSD. But what I really want to emphasize is there is no way out of trauma in war. It's just a matter of who we are comfortable seeing that trauma inflicted upon. And I think we have to be very careful 
about making big decisions, about saying that we shouldn't be the ones or our soldiers shouldn't be the ones, our family members shouldn't be the ones who have to receive that trauma because it, it is a fundam it, it fundamentally changes the calculus of when and where we are comfortable going to war and under what conditions. I mean, I think another thing that, that is maybe important to keep in mind is that the United States is not exceptional in the idea of using technology to treat people who are in the military, right? Uh, one thing that uh, Skip and I were chatting about off camera was that that basically everybody else is going to be looking at this too. We may be doing this right now and we may be kind of at the forefront of it, but there's no reason that other countries are not going to be developing some of the same technology to once again, make sure that their military is able to come back and process their PTSD and, or, you know, and in addition to kind of, as we were saying, prime them to go into battle and process those things before they happen, right? So this is this is something of an escalation, I think. This is not something that totally, but the United States is going to have a monopoly is, on. My question there is like, are those the people we're fighting or are we talking about our allies in NATO, one? And then two, for me, again, I, it isn't the combatant stuff for me. It's the civilian side of this. It's the people who sure. lived in Fallujah are not going to get the VR priming training, you know, so that the next time, uh, you know, American forces roll into town or, you know, places like that throughout the world in which our combat troops are deployed uh, and up mm -hmm. and, and overturn daily life for people, for regular people, not for insurgents, not for local militias, but for the people who live in those places those are the people who are not going to have access to this stuff. And again, my, my big fear around this stuff is very much if we enable a fighting force to continue to engage indefinitely without morale costs, will we, will we engage in wars that we otherwise would know that the cost was too high to our own people, selfishly motivated, and, and because of that become a more aggressive power globally? You know, and I think there's just knock-on effects to that stuff. Um, Paul Virilio, a, a, uh, a philosopher, famously said that when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck, right? It, it doesn't mm. – it doesn't – you cannot make technology and then assume that it's going to be made only for the best – the best uh, case – the best use cases. When you invent electricity, you invent the electric chair, right? And so when you invent mm. uh, a technique that can prime soldiers to not feel trauma – you, you're opening the door to a lot of things you cannot predict. And I think you just have to be very confident that you're ready to open that door before you, but before you do. Well, I think we've opened the door, clearly. Yeah. The door is open. Yeah. The door is open. I mean, how, 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 does, how does that strike you, Stephen? I mean, I, I, is, is there a danger if we are able to pretty accurately say, you know what, we're able to really reduce the amount of PTSD that troops are going out and coming back with? Right. Does that does that then put us in a situation where there's not as much pushback to going to war, where we're a little bit more OK with saying, you know what, maybe we will invade this place? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, you know, all the way to like the logical conclusion. Right. That's kind of where it's going um, if it's not, you know, guided in the correct in the correct way. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if people are sending off, you know. Johnny and Susie to go fight in some uh, invade another country uh, and mm -hmm. they come back and they're perfectly normal as before when they left. Uh, I could see that being 
I can see people being very desensitized to the idea of war at that point because they're like, well, it doesn't seem that bad for, doesn't seem that bad. Uh, people are just fine. They come back. It, it seemed you get more to that kind of the clean war f- fallacy, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so there would be less opposition to say, you know, whether we're going to go invade Iraq again or something. Um, which is, which is again, I, th- I think it puts us in this really strange position because again, there are absolutely so many people who need help right now. And it is clear that the technology yeah. that is being developed is absolutely helping people who need that help. What kind of knock-on effects does that have in the future? That ends up being the question. And I don't know that anybody really has, we can speculate all day. And I think, you know, Stephen, you're probably one of the best out of the four of us really to, to even think about that. We can speculate all day, but we, we actually don't know what effects that's going to have on just public opinion. You know what I mean? I'm also skeptical about it because I think that it makes some pretty big assumptions about like what the immediate causes of PTSD are and combat related mm. PTSD. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a really great book by Sebastian Younger called Tribe um, that kind of has a, a different take on like combat related PTSD. And he says that it's not necessarily the combat um, or the war itself. It is the way those soldiers return and the way that they interact with the society that they're returned to. And he points to um, like Israel as a really great example of these this society that is at war kind of on its fringes. Um, but the entire society is engaged in that project. And so there is more, it's more easily, easy for a soldier to return to civilian life because everyone to a certain extent in the society understands what that person has gone through. And in America, Mm. the disconnect is so great. And Steve, again, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that that is actually the source of a lot of the PTSD and the trauma is not always necessarily the actions that took place in the war itself, but the reintegration process that fails when a soldier returns home. Mm-hmm. And St- Steve, tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, I, I, I agree with that to an extent, you know, um, an area I would push, push back a little bit is that uh, that's kind of just uh, pushing off the responsibility onto civilians. Um, Cause it's, I mean, it's like the, the veteran comes home and he's like, Oh, you know, you get, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I see it on my Facebook feed every day, you know, all my, uh, all my old Marine buddies, um, you know, the, you, you see, you know, the memes about uh, all these, you know, civilians, they're just so weak and dumb, you know, they don't know what we've, we've been through. Um, and it can, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's like, it, it creates this like us versus them thing where it's, you know, veterans versus, uh, you know, everybody else. Um, you know, it's almost like we have to, in order to like deal with the trauma, we have to create new enemies for ourselves wherever we are um, as a way to, well, I don't even know. Um, so I don't know. I guess I, I agree with that because it is, it's very, I mean, it's different for me because I came home in a much different context than, uh, you know, other people. Um, but yeah, when you come home, you're in, you know, when you're in a war zone, you know, and you're, you're with, you know, your buddies, your squad 24 seven, um, and you're, you know, you're going through these traumatic experiences, you're inflicting traumatic experiences on other people. Um, and then you come home and your friends and family are there. You have a big party. Uh, you know, you go out to, you know, the mall to buy some new clothes or whatever. And 
everyone there is just living their normal lives, nothing going, you know, nothing really changed. And in the back of your mind, you know what's going on somewhere else. And um, so, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird kind of line to walk where I agree with it in one sense, but also it's, I see it more as a, as like a cop out for us as veterans to like <laughs> take care of ourselves and seek out help. There is a lot in here that I think we've only just begun to unpack. And there's a lot of questions still on the table. But for right now, I want to thank you all for joining me, especially you, Stephen, for sharing your experiences with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a good conversation. Uh, and yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. And for everybody out there, thank you so much for joining us. And come back next time for another episode of Reset, the Unauthorized Guide to Video Games. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back, and it's time to break it down with the Reset Roundtable. Join me this time. It's Motherboard Contributing Editor Matthew Galt, along with Army veteran and senior news writer for PC Games In, Ian Boudreau. What's up, y'all? Pleasure to be here. How you doing? So, Matt, you've been reporting on the Army's esports team for a while. What have you been seeing recently? Uh, recently they've just been streaming. They've just kind of been streaming through it. They get on Twitch a little bit, but mostly the activity has moved to uh, Facebook and it's a lot of like skirmishes where it's almost more of a, um, what's the word, like an exhibition showing where it's them versus some other team. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's interaction with the, with the stream, but it's, it's light. Uh, they've kind of pulled back from that at the moment, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, since since a lot of this early reporting was coming out and there was a lot of criticism about what basically all the military's esports teams were doing, it seems like they definitely have pulled back a lot. Do you get the sense that the Army was surprised at the backlash over this? Yeah, I do. I do get the sense that they were surprised by the backlash to this. I don't think that they're used to having this kind of backlash from the public. Um, especially not in the past 20 years, basically since uh, 9-11. I think that mm-hmm. for a long time, the American military has been pretty sacrosanct, uh, a pretty sacrosanct part of American public life. And we, you don't normally see recruiters in these kinds of spaces. Um, I think they were just kind of unprepared for people to be upset that mm-hmm. they were there. I know they don't call it recruiting, Um but I think it's recruiting. And I think that they were shocked by people being upset that they were recruiting online and recruiting on Twitch specifically. Um, and there was an incident, basically anytime the U.S. Army Esports Twitter account makes a post of any kind, uh, mm-hmm. people make fun of it and drag it. Uh, becomes a big 
uh, a mimetic moment. And that happened just yesterday as we're talking. Uh, they had tweeted out a meme and people were dunking on it. So I think this isn't going away. What, what, what was the meme? What did they tweet out? Uh, it was it was a clip from some, it was like an image macro board and it was from an anime uh, that I could not identify. Um, and it was basically them saying like, oh, you of course soldiers also play video games. Um, and then a, like a reaction shot of a samurai coming to kill those people talking about soldiers playing video games. Um, and, you know, it just it didn't didn't go over very well because like everyone knows that everyone plays video games. That's not what people are mad about. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's complete misconstruing of the situation. Right. Man, okay, I'll have to look at that one. That sounds kind of wild. Uh, Ian, I see you're shaking your head. Well, yeah, it has been pretty ugly every time they've kind of tried to wade into, uh, you know, the, uh, let's put it, the, uh, the um, Steve Buscemi carrying the skateboard territory. Uh, this goes back to, I think, when Matthew and I were reporting, there was a kind of really notorious tweet where they interacted with the Discord Twitter account mm-hmm. and uh, tweeted out the... Uh, the little uwu text face, right? And, uh, that got uh, that got dragged for weeks afterwards. And I, just based on my own reporting, uh, I know that the person responsible for that tweet really got um, took it pretty hard. And I, I think uh, that person really uh, wound up uh, shouldering a lot of harassment and abuse online um, in the wake of that. And it was a pretty major hit to morale, I think, for that soldier and for the other people on the team too. So like Matthew said, it was a, I think a legitimate shock that the blowback from this uh, story kind of blowing up uh, Mm -hmm. was so bad. Right. So Ian, I know that you were based at Fort Knox for a while. Obviously this was before the esports team, but what were things like in terms of recruitment and marketing back then? Well, when I was there, it was between uh, 2004 and 2007. So this was pretty well into the time of America's army being deeply into uh, development. Mm-hmm. Um, there, were, there was a lot of the traditional recruiting going on. And in the, um, I, this was you know, also a few years after September 11th. So there was some pretty, I think, traditional uh, recruiting efforts going on. But the recruiting command certainly wasn't short on money. Uh, and so there was kind of a blend, I'd say, of, you know, the shoe leather uh, telephone lead going into high schools, uh, the kind of recruiting that you'd expect, plus these new initiatives like America's Army and looking into stuff like that. So that was already uh, already kind of on the screen, I guess, uh, back then. But I don't know that anybody could have predicted, you know, streaming um, and a Twitch culture uh, at the time, but like uh, like Matthew said, you know this is this getting negative feedback on that kind of thing is a pretty new thing for I'd say anybody who's in active service right now. That just wasn't this was uh, when I was active duty. It was very much a raw yellow ribbons around everything kind of time for the country in general. So this is new territory for everybody. I think. I mean, that's I wonder what your take on this is, but my perception, right? Obviously, I've not been in the military, but it seems that interactions that if somebody's going to go talk to somebody who's in the military, specifically if they're, whether they're active duty or they're a veteran, the conversation they're going to have 
more often than not, is going to be something like, thank you for your service or something like that. On Twitch, it's like they're going into somebody else's home. And very often it looks like these are people who are, they're opening themselves up to just getting criticized right off the bat. And I don't, it seems like the military was not ready for that, for the possibility that people really might not want them there and that they would feel very comfortable telling them, I don't want you here, get out. That's not something that you're, that's not, I don't think that's something that you're going to get if, you know, your average dude wearing fatigues walks into an Applebee's. He's not going to get a bunch of people saying, hey, go home. But they do get that sometimes at high schools and colleges, mm, right? Mm, mm, true. Um, because the, 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 those are spaces where they are not always welcome, depending on the community that they're in. And I've heard, I've, I've interviewed recruiters, and I've talked to recruiters about the kind of, of sustained abuse they get from, a com, uh, from communities. Now, um, particularly talking to one that was working in upstate New York. Uh, and got a lot of like really wild uh, anti-military types coming in and talking to them. Mm. Now, obviously, that's not always the norm, but it's but the military does. They should have known better the space that they were going to be going into and operating in because Twitch is an open forum, right? It's an open place on the internet, and even without and it's a hard like it's a hard thing mm. to be on camera for that long playing a video game and engaging an audience. That's that's tough. Um, and I think that one of the biggest takeaways from this whole thing is that the military didn't understand how tough it was going to be and just kind of didn't understand what it takes to be a Twitch streamer. I That's uh, exactly uh, my point, too. I think uh, the this is a case of, I think, I mean, the discussion, like bringing up war crimes in the... Uh, Twitch channels and things like that. Not everything that the military screws up is on the level of a war crime. Sometimes it's much more boring corporate kind of mistakes. And this really smacks to me of a leadership initiative that probably didn't understand what esports really meant and what Twitch streaming really meant. And uh, and then creating a opportunity for junior leaders to fill that you know uh, that project basically and make it happen. Uh, so I do think that this is probably a case, like Matthew said, of people going in blind and not really understanding what the Twitch ongoing conversation is like and what the demands of uh, those parasocial relationships that that develop between streamers and their audiences are like, what they were really taking on with this project. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do have a lot of sympathy for the soldiers who wind up on camera streaming. I think uh, this is probably something that was extremely exciting as a prospect. And I, uh, I can be pretty sure, I think, that they're all very sincere about their enthusiasm for the Army mm-hmm. um, and not really understanding that their performance and their presence on the team is – it comes off as kind of cynical and uh, – it's being used as a, as a recruiting tool. I, I mean, I'm sure they understand that component of it. They're part of recruiting command now, but um, when you're not a recruiter and you're kind of helping recruiters, the story is that, Hey, all you're doing is bringing your story to a bunch of new people. It's not that uh, it, there's no pressure or anything. It, there's some insidious stuff that goes on with kind of roping in other parts of the military into the recruiting mission, but 
I, that's, you know, again, kind of accept, uh, expected, I guess, with recruiting too. Yeah. Uh, you know, for better or for worse, since it's an it's an all volunteer force, and since that's been the case, recruiters have kind of been full of shit. So that's <laughs> just the way it's been. <laughs> Sorry, you said recruiters are what? <laughs> Sorry, uh, recruiters uh, tend to stretch the truth or lie by omission. Sometimes they're not really necessarily telling you the full story, and everybody knows that once you get in. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess you could say that about any kind of marketing, but it's. We're talking about something slightly different when we're talking about, hey, sign up and we may be handing you a gun and you may be shooting that at some people and some people may be shooting back at you. Not exactly the situation where I want somebody to stretch the truth. No, um, but I, I, you know, everybody that I met while I was uh, active duty had some uh, humorous story about some promise their recruiter had made for them that never came to pass. But, yes. um but you're right, though. I think that like marketing is uh, it's one thing if you're being sold a product. It's another if you're being put in harm's way, potentially. So, uh, yeah, these are important decisions and the way these things happen. Uh, it's, you know, bears, I think, a strict kind of scrutiny. So, yeah, we should be doing that. One one thing that so, you know, I'm, I'm curious about your your take on this, but when I was at Fort Knox and basically anybody in the military that I spoke to, one of the common threads that I would hear was that they feel misunderstood. They feel like civilians don't get them. They feel like nobody understands what the military actually does. And I found that really surprising because I feel like people have a fairly good idea of, you know, often I think a fairly positive view of what the military, shall we say, has to offer as a career. People know that, yes, you can get the military to pay for your education. People know that you can get a job. I was, I was very surprised to hear that so many people in the military genuinely feel like they're misunderstood and the civilians just don't get them and that they need to correct that and that this is a problem that they've had, what, for decades now and they're still solving the same problem. I, I found that a little surprising, but I wonder how that strikes you. Yeah, that, that, that tracks with my experience. Uh, I think it's a message that troops are, uh, that troops hear over and over from their leaders that you're special, you're kind of set apart from the rest of the population. Only 1% of the American population serves in the armed forces. So I think it's probably as much a factor of that kind of culture of being set apart from everybody else uh, as much as anything else. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that there's been any effort on the part of the uh, American public to try to alienate the military. But uh, yeah, I think the armed forces do feel that they're uh, probably misunderstood and, and separated from the uh, the rest of the, the population. And I mean, having gone to Fort Knox, you can kind of see it's sort of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, yeah. You're out there about 40 minutes away from Louisville and Radcliffe's not really a great town to uh, hang out in. So, um, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, uh, spend a little time yeah, there. So you wind up you kind do. of in your own enclave. Not great. No, I yeah. can't recommend Radcliffe, but at least, uh, yeah, I don't know how much has changed, but it's mostly liquor stores and used car dealerships as far as I can remember. <laughs> it hasn't changed. But, <laughs> I'm, I'm sad to report yeah. it has not changed. Yeah, yeah. Can't imagine. And that's the that's what's outside every single army base in the country. So mm -hmm. um, you just don't have like vibrant. They, they feel like uh, their own 
civilizations kind mm-hmm. of uh, that are kind of attached to these huge, massive tank ranges or gunnery ranges, and there's just nothing around. Yeah. So I think that probably contributes to that perception too. Yeah. I mean, the, just the fact that military would be sort of inserting itself into a space like Twitch, which as we know, and I know, Matt, that you're very familiar with this, that gets really toxic sometimes, really toxic, really racist, really sexist. There's a whole lot of behavior that's happening on there. And I mean, I'm curious, how have they been acting in this space that they know can get pretty dicey? Well, first of all, I really just very briefly want to touch on the the discussion, previous discussion topic. Sure. I think that this um, this separation between the civilians and the military mm-hmm. um, is one of the biggest problems facing the modern American military today. Uh, and I think that you don't have this story, this Twitch story, without literally decades of those two parts of the population drifting apart and not being able to communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's like this standard of uh, interaction that most civilians have when they learn that you're a veteran, say, thank you for your service. Um, if they're creepy, they're going to ask you some creepy questions, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then that'll be kind of the end of it. And there's not really um there's not really the impetus on the American public to learn what's actually going on, to learn where people are fighting and to learn where their military is or what, what the jobs even are. Um, now, so we'll set that aside. I just, I needed to get that out. Cause I think it, it's one of my, my, my pet peeves right now. Yeah. Um, well, yo, I mean, even, even just to jump I, on that, I think if, if I can, if I can add on to that, not to interrupt, man, but I think that there's, there's a very real, divide here that I think maybe some people might not appreciate in that you can look at the military and it is a lot more black and brown than it used to be. A lot more black and brown than it used to yeah. be. And I remember the recruiters coming to my school and me being a little bit surprised and saying, oh, wow, they're, they're really trying to swoop all of us up. Okay. All right. And, and I think that is, that is something that I think is very interesting now because, for example, Twitch, you can watch Twitch for free. You don't actually have to own a video game. And so you can be in a very low-income household, and the military really does have a direct line to you. They don't even need to go to, for example, when I was in high school, they used to try to show up to the track meets. And I used to get the phone call saying, hey, Thomas, I see you're putting up some good times on the track. You want to come run for us? I wasn't into it. But now had they talked to me a little bit earlier and said, Hey, Dex Digi, that's my screen. Hey, Dex Digi or whatever. Hey, kid, you're playing a lot of Fortnite. You want to see what we're doing? You may want to play some Fortnite for us? I might have thought of that. And so if you got a young black and brown kid who doesn't have a whole lot of money, doesn't have a whole lot of money to really be buying the latest equipment, buying the latest games, but I want to watch people playing games, playing it on that high-tech equipment, and somebody starts chatting to me in the chat, I might be swayed in a way that I wasn't and much more easy access to me. So I think that is definitely a part of the conversation here. For sure. No, I think, I think you're yeah. absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. Um, because the, one, of the, one of the most traditional stable paths uh, to a middle-class life in America is through the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially as income inequality becomes greater and the military continues to blossom and it needs more people, 
um, and it needs more, you know, highly skilled, technically trained people. Um, it's going to continue to push into these kinds of spaces, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I and I think you're absolutely right. Kind of um, that you that you highlight there why this feels predatory because the context is different, mm-hmm. right? When you're talking to somebody alone uh, on a computer or watching on an iPhone. Um, it it's different, right? The context is different than when you are, are at that track meet or you are at school um, and you are you are within the bounds of this context, right? And you feel like there are other other adults around that are not um, privy to these people that you're talking to. And I, th- I think that's also a big part of why this feels so creepy to people and why the military feels like it's misunderstood here, mm-hmm. right? Because it didn't understand the context that it was moving into. Yeah. And I think, I mean, even just to add on that just slightly, you know, I mean, I think as you were saying, Matt, there, there are a lot of people, if you, if you live in a big city and you're fairly well off, there's a really good chance that you don't know anybody personally in the military, right? If you, if you're black or brown, if you are working class white person, there's a much higher chance that you got some family who've been in the military because that was a career option for you. Because just how it is in this country, there are very limited ways to, shall we say, make a living, really. And as, as things get more difficult and as income equality gets more and more serious, you know, college isn't an option for people. And if you're in a higher income bracket, you know, your parents can send you off to school. If you're black, brown, poor white person, if you're in a lower socioeconomic status, then the military is not just an option, it may be one of very few options. And I think that that divide you're talking about, I think it, it really comes in there for real. But yeah, I know I know, I sort of interrupted you. Ian, it looked like you had something to say. Oh, no, I, I, I'm just loving this. I think you guys are dead on the money. I also think, though, that, you know, as uh, this has always been the case for recruiting for an all-volunteer force, that where kids are, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to be moving into. So at... In one way, shape, or form or the other, we're going to have to deal with the military being online and involved in gaming. Uh, I do think that the way that this has gotten off to a start comes off as uh, a little more fraudulent than it probably should. I think Mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, veneer of esports on a team that's really not about esports at all is, um, that's questionable. Uh, I think the most charitable interpretation of that you can um, apply is that they didn't really know what they were talking about when they got into it. But the jerseys and the idea that like you're going to be, you've got the kind of pro setup, like you're on Phase Clan or Evil Geniuses or something, but it's for the army. I think that's getting a message across that's dishonest. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, how, whatever form it ultimately takes, this is where youth are kind of focused right now. So we have to expect the armed forces to be looking for recruits in those places. It's just a matter of how that happens. Mm -hmm. So it's not, so it's not just the esports team. It's not just streaming. We've also seen the military get involved in esports and streaming with sponsorships. Matt, have you seen that play out? Um, Not well recently. (laughs) Um, So the, 
the Navy was kind of the biggest one that was going hard on the sponsorships. Mm-hmm. Uh, Navy and Air Force traditionally are, are uh, like to spend their money kind of more on sponsorships. Uh, the Air Force was the last big uh, military branch to get out of sponsoring a NASCAR car. Um, so it doesn't shock me that that's kind of where they're spending their money. But the Navy had uh, devoted a large portion of its $2 million that it had budgeted in 2020 for this uh, to a Twitch sponsorship. Um, they had contracted a pro, co- a pro team called Evil Geniuses kind of in a consulting capacity mm-hmm. uh, to, to help them out. Um, and kind of develop their team and develop the team's ability to chatter with people on Twitch. Um, and then they had also, through Twitch, uh, uh, spent money to develop a web series that was going to premiere on Twitch that was going to highlight uh, every single member of the Goats and Glory, which is the name of the Navy's esports team, uh, Goats and Glory team. So you're going to have like a little half hour introduction to this sailor and like, here's what they do and here are the games they like to play now because of all of the scandals, this is all blown up. Um, wow. And I, the, 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 the brand partners are not happy uh, at the moment. They think that this has been a complete disaster, quite frankly, and, mm. and it has been. Um, and I think again, these are aside from some of the army esports team, uh, the Navy, especially, a lot of these people are 18 to 25. They're young men. Um, they 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 have like they've grown up online, but we have to remember that they are still they're still young dudes. And you give them a lot of responsibility, and you get them these brand sponsorships. Um, it's hard, and it can mess anybody up. It could trip anybody up. Um, it doesn't excuse. Uh, you know, the Navy's scandals around uh, the racisms that they were dropping on their Twitch streams. Um, But you can see how like someone that's untrained and actually the sailors are, it's not like with the army where they are dedicated to the esports. The sailors have a day job, you know, Mm -hmm. so they're going and they're working on uh, a submarine or what have you. And then at night when they come home, uh, submarine's a bad example, but you, you understand my point. Right. Um, they they have a day job and they're doing this Twitch stuff when they come home. It's you're 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 giving them another full time job on top of the full time job they already had. Right. Of course, something stupid was going to happen. Yeah, you you mentioned the racism thing. I, I don't think we got to it directly. So if you could break that down for me. Okay, so uh, the Navy has not streamed in several months, and it hasn't streamed in several months because the last time it streamed. Uh, they were playing Among Us, um, which is a team-based game, and the sailor had brought on some of his friends to play with him. Um, and these friends were using screen names for their characters that were inappropriate. Um, they were referencing uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. They had names like Nagasaki 1945. And then one of them used a name that is a well-known um, uh, replacement for a racial slur. Um, and you could see them kind of giggling uh, as they were doing this, like eighteen-year-old edge lords, right? Jesus. I mean, because that's if you, if you wouldn't what mind, what, what, what was it? What was it they said? Uh, gamer word, which is Ga- oh, um, G- okay, gamer word. So the N word, yeah, gamer word. Neat. Yes, Great. exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Hold on, I'm sorry. Uh, a, was, a, sa- a sailor it, brought on his buddies, and one of them had a very thinly veiled reference 
to the N-word. And they're playing on the screen. Correct. This was the, uh, yeah, they were playing Among Us, and this was the, the player who was controlling the uh, black-colored ast- astronauts. Oh, so, I mean, even it was better. impossible to mistake. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was, they were, they knew exactly what they were doing. Real classic. not something that you could dance around and, and, and pretend they were, his friends were being racist. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's guilt by association that goes on there. He allowed them on and, and played with them for 45 minutes before they finally realized that they'd screwed up and shut the stream down. And they haven't been, the Navy has not been back since then. Um, they've, they said they've pulled back to recalibrate and re- rethink the, the, the program. Right. And the, the sailor who was conducting the stream that evening uh, is still a sailor, but is no longer part of its esports program. Probably still in there, but okay. All right. I mean, that's, that is fairly heavy. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do have to say, though, that I suppose I can see why the military would think that they would just be welcomed by gamers with open arms. Because look, I'm sure all three of us have played a hell of a lot of military shooters before. Call of Duty, Battlefield. I mean, you could go through the list. And so, yo, if they're playing games about us, wouldn't they want to hang out with us in the chat? And then all of a sudden they find out, actually, no, a lot of, a lot of them don't. That must have been a shock. That yeah, must have been a real I think shock. that's got to come as a... a, 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 a the, there's also, I don't know. I mean, everybody is different. Uh, you know, people are, you know, people join the military. They are still individual people. But mm-hmm. I, I did find it super creepy while I was active duty to see the kind of media that was being made about the Army and the other armed forces at that time because it was very jingoistic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that made, it was uncomfortable to look at. Um, just seeing the, you know, the, day-to-day job versus like this uh, very valorizing, um, mythologizing. Um, Mm. I don't know that this is super germane to the point, but that hasn't really changed a whole lot, even among games that sort of, you know, ask tough questions. I think, you know, there's still, so, I mean, yeah, I think all, all that to say, I think you're right. It would have been kind of a shock. Like everybody thinks that we're heroes. We should just be able to stroll in here and be celebrated immediately. Um, and that's simply not what happened. <laughs> so, yeah, def- definitely. Well, I also not. think, uh, I also think it speaks to um, a change in the culture, especially a change in the youth culture. And I think that this, this separation between the civilians and the military has gotten so bad that um, young people who have lived uh I mean, Ian, you and I are old men. Um, we there are people that can drink now that don't remember a time when we weren't at war. Yeah. Right? Like how yeah. wild is that? Like how different is that from when we grew up? That's so bizarre and surreal. And that has an effect on the politics of the kids that are playing these games. Um and, you know they they under I think they understand these games as escapist fantasy, but that doesn't necessarily mean they want to do uh, the war crimes from Spec Ops: The Line and think that it's fun, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm thinking of. Sorry, did I get too heavy? No, no, no. This is I think you're, you're totally right, man. I mean that that's what I'm saying is I think that we may, but we may also be that that is to say, it's sort of the thing, the point that you made. We may be in the middle of 
maybe a more cynical generation. I, I think that I think that's possible. Yeah, and I, I think th- that, I might, think be that good. might be it could be. And I, I think that might be what the military is running up against. I think maybe they expected to be sort of welcomed with open arms, like what more often than not might happen if somebody strolls into the local Applebee's and, you know, with some boomers in there and just, hey, let me buy you a round of drinks. Man, you come into Twitch and you might get flamed. And it's because there's some kids in there who have grown up post 9-11 and they're starting to ask some questions that maybe the older generations weren't really asking. I've something else I want to hit on this too, uh, that I, that I think is really important to bring up, um, is that the field of recruitment in this country is, is getting very narrow. Um, Mm. you know, the stat that I've seen repeated since 2017 is that only around 70, like 71% of the eligible people age 17 to 24 cannot join the military. Um, and it's because of weight um, it's because of criminal history and it's because of past drug use. And it's not, not just like marijuana, but, um, if you are prescribed ADHD medication, you have to have been depending on the branch is different, but you have to have been off of it for a number of years and present a note that you can function without it. You have to essentially prove that you've been cured of whatever they gave you the the psychiatric medication for. Um, so the prospects are getting narrow. And it's such mm-hmm. a problem that um, you have groups of former admirals and generals that have banded together to make a think tank that is just about trying to solve the problem of an all-volunteer forces pool shrinking. And they sent a, they sent a letter to the secretary of the uh, uh, or the defense secretary a couple days ago, saying like, "Hey, this is a problem. Um, your recruitment pool is shrinking, mm-hmm. and it, the number one reason that they cite in their letter is is weight that people simply can't pass PT. Even people that would want to join the military can't get in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that the, you're seeing them shift." their demographic focus rather than attempt to address the underlying like cultural problems that are like big and concrete that underlay all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to make sure that we understand that too. Yeah. Well, or at least talk about it. Sure. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think, I don't think that, that I don't think anybody here thinks. Yeah. I mean, not just here, but I don't think anybody believes that the military is going to stop recruiting on Twitch. Or streaming. Right. They're here to stay. But but let's sort of flip that around, right? What would happen if the military was to stop streaming, stop recruiting on Twitch? I ask that because you know we're 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 in a world right now, we're in a world right now where so much is happening online, particularly with the pandemic, where a lot of things have had to shift online, and that's just gonna be the way that it is going forward. If the military would have stopped streaming, what would happen if they were to stop recruiting online? I mean, I can give you the scary, the scariest possible implication of that. Okay. Um, is that at a certain point, if you can't fill out an all-volunteer force, um, you have to bring back the draft, mm. right? If you, if you can't fill your recruitment numbers with an all-volunteer force, you're not allowed to go to the places where kids are, then you have to use the draft to get people. Um, but of the first, I think you would see, uh, uh, an unprecedented ad spend in digital spaces, 
Um, you know, you would like some of the Marine ads that they're running now would become as ubiquitous as uh, the Marine fighting the big lava monster from when Ian and I were kids. Um, you would see that before every YouTube video. And I think yeah. they would try all that stuff first. Yeah, it was mm. a good one. Um, but I mean, Ian, I'd like to hear what you think about that question. I think that's I think that's largely correct. You just wind up moving those dollars into other online spaces that aren't uh, streaming games. I think they I could see them um, leveraging or creating partnerships with players like Netflix to create a kind of a GI Joe type, um, like a real slick, well produced. Uh, TV series that got that got people uh, talking. I mean, ultimately, we're in a world now where, especially after this year of pandemic lockdowns, if something doesn't happen online, it's it might as well not be real. Um, and I think the the military's aware and been aware of that, so it's going to come uh, in some form online. So, um, and those again, you know, working with players like Netflix or um, uh, movie directors in Hollywood, that's nothing new for the Defense Department. They've been doing that for a long time as well. Right. So falling back on partnerships like that, I can see that uh, as as being the the uh, the other plan. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, those mobile gaming stations, uh, recruiting is going to involve gaming in some way, just because that's what kids want to do right now. Right. So uh, as games become popular, you're going to see a uh, direct uh, proportional increase in recruiting being focused in that space too. Right. right. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yeah. Oh. If uh, the, the, so go ahead. Yeah. Oh no. I, I, had to say I just, really. yeah. I just mean that uh, just specifically because early in the episode, we talked a little bit about that. There actually was a proposal to stop the military from being able to market like this from stop, stop them from being able to stream. And I think it's just, okay, what are the implications of that? What happens then? You know what I mean? And I, I think that's where it gets interesting. Yeah. I think you probably get America's yeah. army too, as well. I'm sorry. Yeah. You do get America, another version of America's army, I think. Mm. Um, but it would be good to actually have the conversation about what would it take for, um, rather than an, uh, than an outright ban, what if the bill was to place uh, some bright lines about how this was going to be done online? If you're going to be online, then these are some standards that the legislature's got uh, for this to happen. If we're going to open the purse strings and- Do you think that should happen? I do. I think that this should be something that the American public is uh, at least privy to, a conversation about the standards and practices that uh, can be allowed. If recruiters are going to be online, then maybe people need some sort of, some assurances about what they will and will not, by law, be able to do. I think they also need to admit that they're recruiting. I think that so much of the public ire around this would dissipate if they would just say yes. Um, this is part of a recruitment effort, mm-hmm. and. A lot of the branches are kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth about that specific topic. And I think that just just admitting it, I think, would go a long way to assuaging people's anger. So I think another part of this is that this is not just the Army coming up with their own ideas on how to do this, right? Coming up with their own ideas how to, how to stream. They're, the military is also hiring outside firms to help them do this. And I know you've done some reporting on this, Matt. Right. So when you see the military, like a really neat uh, commercial for the military, Mm -hmm. they didn't just do that in-house. They always contracted that out 
to a company that that helps them make that commercial. And this is no different. Um, the the Navy and the Army uh, especially have contracted outside players to help them develop their Twitch streams. Um, the biggest one that jumps to mind is Evil Geniuses, who had a partnership with the Navy, who's a esports team that helped them kind of develop their voice on Twitch. But there's also these large consulting firms that there's that the military is spending millions of dollars on to help them create these these efforts on Twitch. And it is kind of funny to see this military money get kind of blown. Um, in these efforts and watch it kind of explode. Uh, but yeah, that's an important part of this process is like, there are third parties involved here. Um, third parties that probably should have known better. So y'all been reporting on the military and esports for a few months now. What's been the most surprising part of this for y'all? The most surprising part of this for me has been that there was so much pushback. Mm. I really didn't expect, uh, e- e- much like the military, I didn't expect for this kind of like activist pushback against them. I'm so used to seeing them kind of recruit and kind of operate in the public sphere and, and kind of be welcomed with open arms. Mm-hmm. Ian, how about you? I guess for me, the big surprise has been that they've pretty much weathered the fallout from all of this uh, in the classic way of buttoning down and waiting it for, to blow over. Um, that's uh, I didn't expect it to. I kind of figured uh, this will probably maybe they'll uh, – how do I want to say this? Sorry. I, I guess I thought what would happen would be that they'd probably button up the program for a while and maybe abandon it or come back in a different way or who knows. But it really just has worked to not talk about it or not make waves for a little while. And mm-hmm. uh, I think like Matthew said earlier, they've just uh, streamed through it and tweeted through it. And it's it's. <laughs> uh, I, I guess it's just getting normalized to the point that uh, that it's 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 not the story of the day anymore, and it's gonna it's just gonna stick with us forever, <laughs> like the space force. So, like the space force. Yeah. Although I do have to say, when I was at the Pentagon um, in the little gift shop, all the space force merchandise was definitely on clearance, final clearance. I don't know what that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to predict anything. I'm glad. I'm just saying. <laughs> Final sale. <laughs> final sale. <laughs> oh, final sale. Okay, oh. final sale. Pardon me. Thank you for fact checking me. Um, yeah. No. Any um, anything you wanted to touch on that we haven't touched on? There was a lot in there. We should uh, abolish the independent air force. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. One thing I think. I'll shut up. It, Maybe we didn't uh, talk about a whole lot, but I know we touched on this a little bit. I think that probably most of the people who are streaming for the military are pretty inexperienced first time, first enlistment uh, folks who really got a chance to do something that is like a Willy Wonka's golden ticket. Uh, these are folks that probably showed up at their the, the job that they trained for uh, in a entry level position in which they got zero respect at all. And all of a sudden, they're given an opportunity to rocket to the into this uh, into the seat of a pro gamer. Um, improbably, uh, this it's 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 really hard not to uh, sympathize with anybody who took that opportunity when offered. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think they probably bit off more than they could chew, and probably were sorely unprepared for uh, what would. 
what a, a streamer who had built up an audience organically probably would have, uh, you know, learned on the way up. But um, I do feel for them, and I hope they get this uh, straightened out uh, because I, <laughs> I don't know, I've I've been a knucklehead E4 before in my life too. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I, they've got my sympathy on at least as far as that goes. Gosh, man, anything from you? Nope, just the stupid thing I said a moment ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know what? The, I don't know where this goes, but sort of the, I'll tell you, and th- this is a. I, I also brought this up to Wardinsky as well, but I have obviously seen in the chats one of, aside from just, I don't think the army should be here. There's the, the sentiment kind of that the military is sort of preying on kids, that they're, they're preying on this vulnerable population, right? Which we've definitely seen this set. And if you bring this up to somebody in the military, at least in the conversation that I've had, it's the, well, we're, we're the parents. We definitely want the, you know, parents should be monitoring what the kids are doing, which is super interesting for me because that is the same conversation that we've been having for years about video games. You know, Mortal Kombat drops. It's just, well, these games shouldn't be going up to kids. It's, well, we're the parents. These are the same conversations I have with rappers. When I say, hey, what do you, what do you say when people don't like your message and it's bad for kids? It's just, oh, we're the parents. I find it super interesting that the same conversation that we were having back in 92, 93, about Mortal Kombat, about bloody video games, we're having that very similar conversation about should the army be playing these games and playing for an audience of children? Yeah, I think that's, but that's what the military's, that's what recruiting's been for, I'd say, 40 years, which Mm -hmm. is to get ahead of where parents are actually able to actively monitor what their kids are consuming, whether it's uh, comic books, uh, cartoon uh, TV shows, movies, uh, video games, and now uh, streaming. The it's always a race to get to where the kids have figured out their parents can't quite keep an eye on them anymore. Because that's what Twitch is, right? Like you, you can go and watch Twitch wherever you want to, and parents maybe haven't quite grasped like what that actually means now. So I, I think that's just what recruiters have been doing for as long as I've been alive. It's trying to get to that point so you can. You don't have to go through that uh, screening process to get to a pair of ears or a pair of eyes that might be willing to listen to your message for a little bit. So, yeah, as long as there's places where kids have figured out that their parents can't see what they're doing, the military is going to be trying to figure out what that is and get there. Whew. Okay. <laughs> the arms race with the kids' attention. I dig yeah. it. I dig it. I dig it. I, that's a well put. So there is definitely a lot to digest in here, but that is all the time we got for now. Matt, Ian, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. And you, thanks for coming through. There's more to come on Reset, the unauthorized guide to video games. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.